I'm Ray Suarez, and you're listening to Europe in Crisis on America Abroad. Let's go back to what Europe looked like and felt like after World War II. The bitter winter in Europe and the devastating floods came on top of wartime destruction. Still to be overcome, ruined farmland, wrecked transportation, destroyed factories. And yet, less than a decade later, the raw materials behind all that devastation, coal and steel, were beginning to rumble across borders. The customs barriers to coal and steel were abolished. Currency restrictions were swept away. Quota restrictions were lifted. The picture was becoming clearer. A picture of a dynamic, forward-looking idea. This was a new Europe, no longer a battlefield, but a single market. Professor Jeff Anderson directs the BMW Center for German-American Studies at Georgetown University. Even though the negotiations centered on economic factors as sort of common market for coal and steel in Europe, the impetus was political. I mean, it was not by accident that these sectors were chosen. These sectors had proven to be, in some sense, the engine of war over the past 50 years. And so to render these subjects to kind of collective decision-making at some basic level would be to take a very dramatic step toward a a more peaceful and stable future for Europe. Everyone wanted economic cooperation, but how to deal with Germany? An economic powerhouse and a feared military power, Germany was the key question back then. Klaus Laris is German. He's a professor of European studies at Johns Hopkins University. So much mistrust was around, so much skepticism about the Germans was around that everyone expected the Germans to rise again within a short period of time, perhaps develop another Hitler, and the whole story of uh, war and enmity would begin all over again. That had to be prevented. To prevent that, the French came up with a plan. World interest focuses on the Quai d'Orsay as six European nations, including Western Germany, meet for their first working session on the Schumann plan for pooling steel and coal. At those meetings in Paris, French Foreign Minister Robert Schumann described how mutual economic need could help bring peace to Europe. Monsieur Schumann's immediate aim is to thin out economic boundaries between nations, and the latest plan for overall control of the project by an international assembly of MPs may well herald the dawn of a brighter future. By the end of the 1950s, a brighter future had arrived. It was called the European Economic Community. There was a lot of dynamism, a lot of uh, hope, a lot of uh, optimism around that Europe was really getting its act together, that peace was uh, really guaranteed after 10 years, that it was impossible that the Germans and the French would go to war against each other, and not least, that uh, Europe was becoming ever more prosperous, because that was important. The booming prosperity of Western Europe, plus the interdependence of its countries, has raised living standards and broadened marketing horizons almost past belief. Already, its combined purchasing power has made it a formidable rival to the United States. Again, Georgetown's Jeff Anderson. The typical European citizen is feeling much more prosperous in the 1960s relative to the 50s or certainly the 40s, feeling like horizons are much more open for uh, his or her children in terms of educational opportunities, in terms of, if, if you remember, the working class training opportunities, abilities to get you know, decent paying jobs in the manufacturing sector. And perhaps a lot of that is a function of European integration, the, the common market, but the average person isn't necessarily going to make that connection, right? But the elites did make that connection. For them, the European Economic Community, or EEC, was a major reason for the continent's rejuvenation. So let's see uh, Europe 
uh, as being a, a vital part of this prosperity narrative and this peace narrative that uh, it's now been 15, 20 years since the end of World War II. There's been nary an inkling of any kind of repeat of history. The EEC must be doing something right here. The EEC was doing so much right that it began to attract new members. The United Kingdom, Ireland, and Denmark all joined up in 1973. However, it was around that time that a global economic downturn would test this burgeoning union. Again, Georgetown's Jeff Anderson. I think there's a growing sense that Europe is a place where things don't happen. There's stasis, there's bureaucracy, there's kind of mutual vetoes, and there's an inability, apparently, to kind of get moving on a common agenda. And that's where the 80s come in in such an important way. There's a sense that Europe needs to do something if it's to kind of survive in this changing international environment. And the solution is a collective one. European leaders forged ahead with plans to streamline and invigorate the European economic community and even more deeply integrate their respective economies. What happened next, though, is something no one expected. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. In 1989, the Iron Curtain that had divided Europe was unexpectedly lifted and that changed everything. Klaus Laris happened to be visiting his native Germany at that time in Cologne. I switched on the television set and suddenly I saw what's happening there and that was the breaching of the wall in Berlin. The East German media chief in the Communist Party said a short while ago that anyone who wants to leave East Germany and go anywhere in the world is free to do so. And of course anyone was utterly surprised, was in a way also pleased and exhilarated, but at the same time we were also all very sceptical. We all remembered uh, the awful crimes committed by Hitler, and immediately uh, our minds flashed back to the past, and we feared, wow, what is going to happen? Will the German politicians of the future be able to contain their ambitions and aspirations? Laris wasn't the only person asking that question. Throughout Europe, there was a concern that with the wall down and German reunification becoming a reality, that a dangerous nationalism would return to Berlin. In the winter of 1991, European leaders gathered in the Dutch city of Maastricht for a critical meeting. But it's Germany's Helmut Kohl who dominates this summit. Kohl's argument is that the best way to keep history from repeating itself is to bind Germany to a strong European government. Above all, Europe needs a common currency. Germany's Chancellor Helmut Kohl had to contend with nationalism at home and concern about the possibility of a powerful united Germany abroad. So he struck a deal with French President François Mitterrand, a deal that would change the future of the continent. And the idea Mitterrand came up and Kohl agreed to was that Germany had to be even more firmly integrated into Europe. And that way, even a strong German economic superpower could be tamed. And the idea was a common European currency should be uh, drawn up. That meant the Germans would have to give up their strong uh, currency, the Deutsche Mark, and adopt, like all other uh, European countries who wanted to join, a new European currency. The meeting in Maastricht laid the foundation for what would become the Eurozone, a common currency for Europe and the EEC received a new name, the European Union. Still, it took a decade for that euro to go into the pockets of Europeans. That happened on New Year's Eve 2001. Here's what NBC had to say. In Europe, E-Day. 
fireworks at midnight marking more than New Year's. Tonight, the euro has become the official currency of 12 countries. Tonight, some of the first euros will be spent on New Year's champagne, ushering in a new currency, some say a whole new Europe. And the whole new Europe is now a whole lot bigger. In 2004, the European Union ambitiously expanded to include former Eastern Bloc countries, like Poland and the Czech Republic, 10 new countries in all. Today, the EU includes 27 member states and nearly half a billion people, and it has the largest GDP in the world. The EU's achievements are remarkable. It helped bring wealth and peace to a continent that had been the battleground for two world wars. But today, the union is being tested once again. It's beset by financial and political woes that have many wondering whether the EU's history of expansion and integration can continue. Coming up, we head to a remote region of Greece that's received millions of dollars of European Union development funding to ask, where is all the money gone? I'm Ray Suarez, and you're listening to Europe in Crisis from Athens to Rome on America Abroad.